Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. Uh, what are we talking about today? I guess like after mainlining experimental pharmaceuticals and potent steroids after contacting COVID-19, uh, Trump tweeted out that he has instructed his reps to uh, stop negotiating over a second stimulus bill, which is important to us because if you look at the music side of things, the uh, tweet was met with much dismay um, as Josh Terry wrote for Vice shortly after Trump just doomed independent music venues. Uh, later writing in an article for Vice that uh, uh, all we can do now is watch Trump and other elected officials guarantee an extinction level event of our favorite venues. Some bleak ass shit, Sam. <laughs> I mean, welcome to 2020, dude. Like, I, I, yeah, and, welcome and, to 2020, right? Like, this is nothing new. And the thing is that they're not, I don't think, being anything like overdramatic. Um, now it is impressive. I think that um, you don't think it's you don't you don't think it's over dramatic that like we we're gonna watch like all our music all our favorite music venues disappear go down the the spiraling uh, toilet uh, of yeah. I mean, well, I, no, I don't. I don't think it's impossible. I mean, I think one thing is that this level of uncertainty makes it a lot mm-hmm. more difficult. I mean, one of the lines in, in that a yeah. lot of people are saying is like first to close, last to reopen." which is true. Um, and I just think for a business that being like, we don't know when we're going to get any government help if we do it all and when we'll be able to open, that makes it much more difficult both at like a like a spreadsheet level and at like a personal emotional level. So if people are like, if you give people a clear date, you have to hold out to this day and then you can reopen. Right. You can plan your life. You can take a six-month gig. You can go do a thing. But I think that, like, in addition to, like, the raw nuts and bolts finances of a venue, this level of uncertainty just at, like, a psychic emotional level. I mean, I've got some friends who are in the restaurant business where, like, and restaurants are, are open. You can do some business. But even there, like, the uncertainty of it is really, like, deleterious to mental health. It's like, I got this business back up and running is it about to close again? Um, so, and- yeah, I mean, obviously, uncertainty on all levels, and that continues into on our personal lives, as you said, and an emotional, psychic level, but, you know, obviously in a very real, just sort of, like, business level. And when it comes to, like, venues, um, when it comes to venues, what Terry was specifically writing about uh, and what everybody else is talking about is, like, the fact that there's been an ongoing effort by a nonprofit called the National Independent Venue Association to pass what's called the Restart Act, uh, which under their Save Our Stages campaign has been calling support from small to mid-sized venues and and a plethora of A-list musicians to help save venues impacted by the enforced shutdown of live music venues due to COVID-19. And so when Trump tweeted that, it was like, oh, well, <laughs> if we're not you know, going to negotiate over a second stimulus bill, then this Restart Act, uh, which has actually bipartisan support, is going to go nowhere. Obviously, like this is like an ongoing thing. Like <laughs> by the time this comes out, you know, it, it, there might be another stimulus bill already. Trump has started sort of like backtracked on it. But, you know, to kind of keep the focus on like music, uh, the National Independent Venue Association has been around since the beginning of this so since like march really quick it emerged had, really quickly it was actually very impressive within weeks they had thousands of venues that um yeah thousands of venues and actually like within weeks they also had a survey claiming that amongst like two thousand venues that they spoke with that nearly 90 percent 
claimed that they possibly would have to be uh, shut down due to not making any money because large gatherings are banned. So it seems like a worthy cause, but, and obviously we support small venues and we like are generally in support of Save Our Stages. But the question is, who does this support and who's behind this? And, you know, what are the other aspects of it that maybe aren't necessarily being covered or examined that are worthwhile looking at? Yeah, I mean, so, so one of the things that really struck me, right? Um, and again, and it's thinking about small venues is thinking and their role in cities and in the kind of modern urban economy. And for one thing, I think it's important to note that like before coronavirus, things weren't like peachy keen. Um, right, exactly. Everyone, <laughs> everyone, yeah, let's be real. Everyone, I mean, someone once told me that the day you become a real New Yorker is the day that you pass by a boarded up thing and say, I saw so-and-so there, <laughs> right? That's like, you get, that's when you get like your 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 real stripe is the first time you pass a closed up business that you remember opening. <laughs> okay, so which one is yours? Drill quick. Oh, it was like 216 bar in the Lower East Side. Um, I didn't right. see anyone good there. I played there and then it, closed and i passed by there and i'm like oh look there that was that place where we decided the best decision after the show was to sleep in the, my parents minivan and a night that got down to 30 degrees right a terrible right, decision right, right. don't do that no one do that um so things weren't great before right everyone has a favorite venue that closed certainly the story of like brooklyn has been venues opening and closing um, yeah, I mean, I've lived there for 10 years and like everybody can name a bunch of different venues, you know, and even like outside of Brooklyn. I mean, I, you know, just to go riff off of that, you know, I saw like Royal Headache at Cake Shop, which is one of the best shows I've ever seen. And, you know, you can just look at it's a Wikipedia page and it says due to rising costs associated with neighborhood gentrification and issues of sustainability, obviously it closed or it changed its operations. So yeah, it's like an ongoing thing. And like, I don't think New York's even unique to that. I think you can probably look at that like all major urban areas in the last 10 15 years and the flip side is that because of this system the venues that often the diy venues that are able to stay open aren't able to do things like be official and that has like real tragic cost too and and i like i i personally am have always been a little bit um not less pro diy but like i'm very pro safety codes <laughs> at venues um and we saw that with tragic consequences in ghost ship right like if the only right, way to no make plan. an indie art space work is to have it be really diy really crammed to the side have people live there have no safety regulations like and i don't blame the creative community because that is the only place that you could make that work financially it's just it's kind of a vicious cycle, it seems to me. Like you want, well, yeah. You don't want venues where like the floor visibly moves when a band plays. Like that's not good. Well, right. I understand that. I mean, that's obviously like a huge, you know, practical factor. Although I'm sure there's like a lot of bullshit around safety codes and cities and money and everything that we could probably explore if we took like 20 minutes to do it. But also, I think that it just automatically creates a sort of exclusivity um around these scenes and this music and this art when you know maybe the stated intention is to be more inclusive than exclusive 
because you're not you so you're having like this music that's like super underground and sort of inaccessible and like word of mouth and you actually can't really allow it to get like too big especially if it's not legal because then you'll get it'll get shut down so you have this like sort of like push and pull where like you want this sort of inclusive all-encompassing open-minded progressive scene but because of the fact that you know the only way you can sort of like survive as a small music venue is sometimes to just kind of be illegal and like word of mouth that you automatically are then making it exclusive yeah yeah totally and i mean i I think there's a broader a broader sense which is that like one of the reasons why this organization has gotten the kind of attention and support it has is bec- and the organization we're talking, just to be clear, just to remind everybody, the organization we're talking about is this National Independent Venue Association, which it, like sprung up in March. Right. So, so it sprung up in March. And I think it's actually really good that it isn't, it is kind of crazy that there wasn't an active National Independent Venue Association lobbying group prior to this. Like there probably should have been. Um, right. No, but, but it is interesting that I think one of the things... If you look at you look at the list of venues, and there's thousands and thousands of venues on this list of of um, uh, participants in this organization, and a lot of these are these kind of like marquee names, like names that you know, names bands have played live, you know, recorded live albums here, like venues that like I've never been to Albuquerque, but it's like oh I I know that venue name somehow, and and one of right, the things that's right. interesting is like it's important to think about kind of the role of venues. Um, and kind of the ideological role of venues in kind of modern uh, urban gentrification, urban reconstruction over the last 20 years. That there's, you know, there's this whole idea of the creative class and the the driver, this is Richard Florida idea, right? The drivers of the new economy are not going to be factories. They're going to be creatives um, and the creatives are going to cluster in, you know, in a knowledge economy way in certain neighborhoods that give them the amenities that they like, like, coffee shops like venues um like easy biking and that the way to get economic growth in a city is to attract this kind of people clearly what that also turns out is attract is a lot of really wealthy people who go to these attractive parts made attractive parts of the city that are planned and supported by the cities and they create a ton of inequality right that you have this move of wealth back from the suburbs into many cities to the detriment of long-term inhabitants of these cities and so venues it's interesting (coughs) williamsburg (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it's interesting right because venues are both like a a key part of this and in some ways obviously uh, a victim of this right that well i think that i think that like it's not like you, you it's it also depends on the type of venue and i think that so i mentioned vice at the top of the show and of course there's a extreme irony which i'm sure is not lost on many people listening to this that you know vice is like lamenting the loss of like small to mid-sized venues and anybody who lived in brooklyn knows that vice had a had a direct hand in the closing of many small venues in williamsburg when it expanded his offices including uh the much beloved glasslands that unfortunately shuttered a couple of years ago but what do you what, what but when the development if we want to talk about williamsburg briefly in the development of williamsburg which is where vice was located is located and ended up expanding and shutting down these smaller venues in williamsburg what do you have you have brooklyn bowl which is like a much bigger 
more funded, supported venue, which is able to, I mean, up until COVID, was able to exist in this sort of like redevelopment arts district. So even within the idea of a venue, you have like the truly independent small glasslands and then you have like Brooklyn Bowl, which is much bigger and can actually still exist in this sort of like redevelopment of like an arts district or an arts area or like a hip or whatever, as you're explaining. No, Brooklyn Bowl is not and cannot be a member of Niva because they own venues in more than one state. Right. But I think what I'm trying to say here is that like in regards to this is that like that, that's a great point and we would definitely get into that. But what I'm just trying to say is that like it's not like venues disappear or there's like certain venues that are like that like ven- venues as like a like as like an umbrella term as like this one like large sort of collective like collective term like actually includes like various different like levels of venues and some are able to survive like the corporate chain brooklyn bowl you know and nothing against brooklyn bowl but just saying that's what it is versus like a more independent venue like glasslands yeah and and i think that even within local venues there's like you kind of said like there's local venues and there's local venues and that similar you know it's this funny thing where like barnes and nobles used to be the bad guy and then Amazon came, and now, like, Barnes & Noble, it's not your local bookseller, but, like, Barnes & Noble is, like, a, a book chain that, like, people like more. But Barnes & Noble's, like, in 1990, Barnes & Noble's was the villain that was, like, and, I, and, I, and I'm not saying that this is the same thing with these major venues, but there is a big difference between a large-scale local venue that's, like, a successful, fairly capitalized business and, like, a tiny DIY space. Yeah, no, 100%, exactly. And I think it's important that, like, when writing about this or discussing these topics, that these sort of nuances are addressed. Because I think that, you know, we don't need to get into it right now. Maybe we won't get into it at all. But I think that's kind of part of our frustration and even part of the reason why we even started this podcast in the first place is that we were seeing a lot of, like, sort of press and coverage about these issues, which had, like, such a deeper, more complex background story that just wasn't being addressed. And so that's why I just kind of wanted to inject that sort of like little thing that even on, you know, even when we talk about venues or even independent venues, we're still talking about so many different levels. But anyways, I didn't mean to take you off track. No, 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 no. I mean, it's true. We're talking about so many different levels. And in some way, that's why an organization like this can exist and why it can hire high-powered lobbying firms and why it can partner with YouTube, which is that, these big venues and particularly like in the ideology of like the creative city center or like the art district, a lot of these venues are like crown jewels. So they they don't just have financial importance for city and they very much do. And it's important not to underplay like if all the venues close in a city, like it really does damage that city's nightlife scene, which is in a service economy world, like a major driver of all kinds of stuff. But also right. that uh, that these cities spend a lot of time valuing a certain construction of a creative class and a certain construction of an artistic community, and I, and I think that one thing that's really interesting to me is what that construction leaves out. Right. So these venues are like city planner approved venues that cater to a certain kind of clientele 
that cater to certain kinds of music. And so going through... A lot of them, at least. Maybe not all of them, but a, a lot, lot of them. them. Yeah, 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 a lot of them. But going... As we'll illustrate shortly. Yeah, yeah, No, so so uh, as so going through the, the criterion for what it takes to join this, you need to play live, original live music a certain number of days a, a year, which means that bar bands playing covers are probably not included in this act or can't be members even though in lots of places that drives part of the live music economy certainly like i I spent four years in baltimore and there's a lot of different things that can be said about the waterfront area there some good some bad uh but there were all these like bar bands in every single bar and like that's great like i'm like 100 percent of the time i'm pro bar band versus like if you have give me a choice bar band or no bar band i'm always going to see the bar band 100% 100% of the time, but... Classic Sam. Yeah, yeah, cl- classic <laughs> Sam. I mean, l- love a bar band. So, bar bands aren't included, but also, and it seemed to me, and, and kind of poking around and seeing what venues, major venues in, you know, that I know of in Brooklyn, New York, that are not included, it also seemed that you need to be performing live music, which means that dance clubs, as far as I can tell aren't included so yeah on the national independent venue association website they have like a list of all their members talking about bar bands doing covers i noticed like skinny dennis wasn't on there and like that's sort of like a seven days a week like country music like past the hat kind of uh bar that like wasn't on there because it didn't meet the criteria because maybe maybe it's the covers issue or maybe it's also because of the fact that i think there was like some criteria where like the bands have to actually be paid by like the venue you can't have like a pass the hat sort of situation so like yeah it's, like once again we're talking about these sort of like these smaller venues these maybe like less definable sort of like bar bar music venue you know and then you also have like the electronic club you know and so it, it kind of d- doesn't actually emb- embody or at least it seems that way and from like the criteria in which we've read it doesn't seem to completely like embody like all all of these different kinds of venues yeah and, and in particular i think that the exclusion of non-live music as a venue does a lot of seems to me does a, a lot of like class and racial work actually that yeah there's a, a lot point. of places with a dance floor that plays salsa music in new york and those are venues in my mind that those are part of uh, a venue being defined by like a place where communities get together and experience music there are some live salsa venues but also there's a lot of places where there's like smaller dance clubs and those are going to go to business and not get support or dance music or you know more like uh dance hall or rap clubs that play that music most of which there aren't many live places because nypd has made it very difficult to run live hip-hop in new york city over the past several decades but just that it's interesting that there is it seems like coming from this kind of urban creative renewal a specifically structured definition of what a venue is, like what a good venue is, what's the kind of venue we want to have in our cities, and that those are the kind of venues that are getting a real national push to keep them around. And there's a lot of other kinds of venues. And, you know, a lot of music is made on computers now and spun by DJs. And um, But, like, that's creative, important music. 
And the fact that you can't go to a place and see that, and if all those places go away, that's an enormous hit to the cultural and community vitality of a pl- of a city. But it's not; it doesn't fall within the purview of this very specifically constructed vision of like what a venue is and what an art scene is. A construction that, like, I can't help but believe is more attractive to like upper class, upper middle class primarily though not exclusively white patrons and audience members and musical forms yeah and i mean i would even argue that actually you know it it would even go beyond like like just being a class thing where like i think it it really is just not taking into account or fails to take into account like i said those 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 clubs that kind of like have a foot in 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 being a dance club and also having live music um i'm thinking of Specifically here in New York, there is a really great uh, Latin music salsa club called Gonzales y Gonzales. And it's like a no-ho. It's like there's a cover. It's like expensive. It's like $7, you know, like beer kind of place uh, for like something cheap. But they have like live salsa bands that absolutely rip. But they also just like DJ. And from like looking at this list, like they haven't been included. And, you know, I don't know whatever <laughs> the backing of like Gonzalez and Gonzalez, if they define themselves as an independent venue or whatever. But according to this criteria, they're not included. And I think the important thing to say here is that I think the important thing that we're trying to come across here is that while this. Uh, association is 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 great and doing good work and like obviously we support venues it's obviously much more complicated and like in doing so it's kind of like failing to take into consideration the diversity of the music scene on like not just like a cultural level but also just on a sort of like business level as well in the sense of like how businesses are being operated and I think though that like the main question that it kind of led me to ask was why are these the venues that are being supported and like who's being supported and who's not being supported, which is like what we're exploring right now. And I think another thing we have to remember is that this is a huge business. Well, you know, it's also, I think that, that um, this also points to, and it's interesting is there is like a funny, there's a funny replacement going on here, right? In that this big push. And it, as far as I can tell, it's the biggest current push, um, arts related or certainly music related push that's happening right now and it's interesting because it's supporting venues right venues which are for-profit businesses venues which are really important and again like we support but there is a funny thing where i feel like in a lot of the press surrounding this there's like a um there's an they make um an equivalency between venues and music scenes and Venues are places where music scenes happen, but music scenes are musicians, first and foremost, and venues are places that pay musicians to perform and that musicians play in, but that are making almost always more money than the musicians. And it's just interesting that in this moment when, you know, there hasn't been unemployment since the end of July... When there's this bill, you know, the, the refusal of the Trump administration to negotiate also means there's not likely going to be a second stimulus check or another unemployment checks coming anytime in the next couple of months. And that while, like, I really support these venues and 
I believe that if all the venues in America went out of business, it would be really bad. But also if every artist in America goes bankrupt or has to shift to a different thing, or if every roadie starts doing logistics, which is like what I've seen articles about, they're like, people who work, you know, road managers for bands, like they're really good at logistics. But if everyone, though, if that technical knowledge and skill goes and becomes logistics managers for other companies, like there's a huge gaping void that's going to open up in the music scene and the venues aren't aren't that and it is interesting that it's so you know the Foo Fighters aren't playing a huge benefit for the artists they're playing a huge benefit for the venues yeah which and there's something funny about that no there's something completely funny about that and I and I completely agree with you that there's just this sort of like immediate acceptance that like oh this is a this is a good this is a completely like 100% like good cause but in reality like like it's completely it's ignoring like a long history anybody who's ever read any kind of like music history uh even like going back like as early as like the 70s or 80s like knows that venues are actually and venue owners are a very complicated story and oftentimes like this sort of like middle person in which band fucks over bands also or like it becomes this sort of gatekeeper into being able to like get a wider audience or like be seen by an AR person or like you know to have like uh, you begin a call following you know in a certain city you know and it's this whole complicated like local you know local sort of scene politics kind of thing that goes on and you know it it, it lead, led me to sort of like ask questions also about how that all happens and thinking like well if 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 all is let's say you know if we're to believe you know this survey that 90 percent of venues would close down then you know if i'm thinking about things like dialectically then okay if that was the 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 if that was to happen then does it also then create like an open space for rethinking how venues operate and rethinking you know like maybe towards a sort of a more uh, uh ideal situation which benefits the artist and I was kind of thinking about like, you know, it does seem strange that like artists are oftentimes local artists are so not involved in the creation of a venues. And obviously that's not the case all the time that, you know, that does happen, but kind of wondering that like, and obviously, you know, we don't want to go down this path this is all for like a subject for like another show, but also thinking about like musicians and artists being more involved on like the business side of things. And I was just thinking, you know, in a very like broad sort of way that it would seems like it'd be so much better to have venues in which artists were like had like a certain level of like ownership or like say over and maybe they weren't like there on the sort of like day-to-day like booking sort of uh aspect of things because you know they want to go write songs and like tour and things like that but it just seems like you know once again let's not forget like venues are middle people and gatekeepers and and like oftentimes discriminatory or you know like have like shady business practices and there's all kinds of skimming off the top or not like you know how many times have we heard the story of like the local band coming up and like not getting you know paid what they're promised you know like this is like you know this is an old cliche but it's like a cliche because it's happened thousands of millions of times and very true you know so anyways it's not to say that we don't support the and it's not to say that we don't support you know the venues but it is just like once again like 
who who's being included here and who's not being included and you made the great point which is like you know just because we're talking about venues doesn't mean that we're talking about artists and like we could save the venues but if there's no artists to play at the venues anymore then what's the point of the venues it's like a symbiotic relationship there that's going on you know I think it's also important to, to just to, to riff off of this whole idea is that if you actually look at the Restart Act and you actually look at the Save Our Stages Act, you'll see that the lobbying group that NIVA hired, so that's once again the uh, National Independent Venues Association, is a Ken Gump. And a Ken Gump is like this like massive lobbying like law firm that, you know, has probably done good things, but also, you know, one of their lawyers represented Paul Manafort. And then you look at like who funded the hiring of this extremely expensive <laughs> law firm. And it was like a ticket company out of the UK. And if you just follow that thread a little bit farther, you're like, well, why would a ticket company be concerned about this? Because this is a, once again, this is a major business and it means money for them. And so like they're coming to the United States and actually funding this so that like it can possibly get passed in Congress. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, are the really small venues, are the Glasslands, are the smaller venues, are the sort of independent ven venues, are the real like DIY venues, are the artists, who's actually getting this money? You know, and you have to kind of like follow that thread. You know, it's not as it's not as cut and dry as just saying like, we need to save the venues. This is 100% like a good thing. Let's, let's write about it like glowingly. You know, like there is also some very much more complicated story there. And it's attached to a much more broader system of economics and that needs to be interrogated. That needs to be interrogated. The 100 needs to be interrogated. So continue. So so continuing with this idea of thinking about artists and revenue streams, particularly in there's a new revenue stream on the block, Saxon. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. And like there is a new revenue stream on the block, and it's called Oda. Oda. So again, once again, talking about like the uh, glowing reviews, including like a like a full you know thousand word write up in the quietest. It's been getting like news items on Pitchfork, and yeah, it's it's been it's being celebrated as like a lifeline for for artists, but mm, maybe maybe not. Like wh like, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Oda? So okay, so I I think like I think I'm p potentially like more intrigued by Oda than you are. Okay, but like, um, what is it? Though? Okay, let's talk about what it is. So, first. so Oda's insane. It's an insane idea, and that's kind of I like it. But so Oda are these like two, <laughs> these two wooden speaker boxes that are slick as fuck looking. Speakers. I love that. In, in the I mean, quietest, slick as fuck. I feel like you are like a very kind of like twee book nerdy type person. In in, like. in the in in the quietest and like guys. Like I love. Wait, hold on. Let me let me let me tell you. They 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 would look great in an Airbnb photo. Like let me tell you. If like I mean that might push me over the edge to like actually like rent your sprawling like three acres in upstate New York if you had a pair of these speakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Frankly, you know that's that's a uh, anyway that's an attraction. No, but so and and like quietest guys. Like I love you. Like oh yeah, I love quietest. Love the quietest. But please, when you write what is clearly a product placement article. Review, if you need to tag it, guys, you need yeah, to tag it. It's not, it's not <laughs> that cool. 
it's just not, and like I I understand like I really love you so like just just like this is said out of the, a really a warm place in my heart. Yeah, and like we totally know like the financial like uh, oh, issues around like I'm an sure. independent like music publication. We've seen all these other music publications of the people that work for him get laid off and die. Like we get it, but like like yeah, we're we're specifically talking about this one article that was like clearly like a product placement description of these speakers. But like let's get to what are they actually? Okay, yeah, because so, this is this is the weird business model that like we wanted to get to. Oda Oda are these um, wooden speakers, um, two wooden speakers that. Uh, the quietest review describes as about the thickness of like a three LP box set. So we <laughs> and uh, yeah, but the difference is is that they have... you know with the deluxe. Like, I don't know how thick the liner book is on that thing. So you know that's actually not yeah, the best. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's these two speakers, and they're connected to basically like a central broadcasting hub, and so. At any time, basically, you could turn them on and they'll be playing some sort of ambient environmental sounds. And then every once in a while, like, they'll just turn on by themselves and start playing a performance. And Oda has uh, gotten a, a lineup of performers to do kind of various things direct from their room in their house, wherever they are, direct into your living room. Um, with kind of like a full stereo sound setup, and it will just start like kind of magically playing. And they and divided, yeah. And they divided these into seasons, uh, which uh, you can subscribe to only after you buy the three hundred to four hundred dollars speakers themselves. And then you, basically, what you do is that you, for an extra eighty dollars, subscribe to a season where you can hear these live performances from the likes of Arca, Jessica Pratt, Bradford Cox. Uh, standing Liragi. in the corner, Terry Riley, Laraji, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. It's an impressive list. It's, you know, if you're if you're into sort of more like deeper experimental sort of indie, it's like a full stuff. basilica. It's a full basilica. Full basilica, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's basically like the same lineup as Basilica in the last couple of years. Um, and so yeah, so these these like live performances happen like through these speakers, and they will not be archived anywhere. So it's like appointment listening only. You have to like you know grab your favorite whatever IPA and your favorite like sitting chair and sit in front and like listen to this or you can just go about your day but uh yeah so it's this it's this weird sort of like mix of live broadcasting with products with concert and the way that they're describing it uh co-founder uh, Nick Dangerfield and we'll talk about the founders in a minute uh noted that uh uh, in, a, in a very PR statement said, we made Oda because live music is a vital part of our lives. We believe all of us should be doing our part to preserve the cultural value of music. Artists are increasingly subject, subjected to unfavorable terms if they continue to give music of life affirming quality. So we're just trying to build something positive and our secret mission, which I guess if he's making it public, it's not a secret, but anyways, uh, our secret mission is to make you listen carefully. If you truly listen, everything will be fine. Right. So... Very cool business idea, but uh, let's be real. These speakers in true capitalist fashion are taking advantage of the current pandemic and a lack of live shows to capitalize on what essentially is uh, selling their product. 
<laughs> and I think that the idea that it's uh, supporting a, a lifeline for artists is is kind of funny, considering that like yes, these artists are hopefully getting paid a pretty penny to do these uh, performances, but we're talking like twenty artists, <laughs> and obviously it's going to be exclusive. So I don't know. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I'll I'll uh, I'll, let, I'll let you uh, give your your less cynical opinion. Well, okay, about this. like I mean, like I'm a sucker for the listening thing. I actually think that intentional listening is really magical. And I'm also a big fan of like ideas that in this like extremely like everything is trying to be made as quick and as fast and as easy as possible world. Like this idea that like this thing just turns on sometimes. I mean, I don't like want one. And like we were, we were texting back and forth and I was like, no one with a kid can own this because like you set your kid to bed and then all of a sudden like Mad Lib starts playing and like your kid wakes <laughs> up again. Like this is a very like specific audience for this kind of product. But I, I so I guess like I'm a little into that. I like the idea of like if you had a cool speaker setup, uh, like um recorder setup in an interesting sounding place, the idea that then there's just like a window to that other place in your apartment is kind of cool but that's just like at a very like i'm a little bit of a sucker for that like i but you are a hundred percent right and that the way this is framed is i'm looking at their business model graphic right now it says we want to create a platform that works for artists hmm. and <laughs> and i'm sure it could work for a couple artists though they don't give any financial details that i could find about Who's getting paid? How much are they getting paid? It's called How marketing. is the selection process working? <laughs> How's the contracts? What kind of revenues, you know, what kind of revenue sharing occurs? I think more generally, it gets at a real issue that I've been thinking about in terms of the music industry and modern music as a commodity, which is, this is like a particularly funny example, I think, because while it's a cool idea, the idea that this is like a way to fix the music industry seems like, patently ludicrous and that this is going to be or even like a, or even like a lifeline for like for widespread artists you know because once again you have to like make people want to like buy the subscription so you're going to like go to like more top-notch like well-known artists you know and like unless you believe in trickle-down economy which i don't think any of us does it's that's that's only going to help a very small sect no, I mean, not to mention that, like, you know, let, let's be real here. Once again, like, this is, like, also creating, like, kind of another role of a gatekeeper. But also, it's it's essentially tech bro entrepreneurs are behind, you know, this idea of supposedly saving artists. Uh, and, you know, like, uh, so, you know, this Nick Dangerfield guy, or Nick Dangerfield? Is it really Dangerfield? That's funny. Yeah, this Nick Dangerfield cool guy name, has Nick. kind of been, <laughs> this Nick Dangerfield guy, you know, who I don't know personally, I don't know anything about him, but like, he's been like heavily involved in a, like, sort of a lot of like apps and like, he once had like a fashion button that like plays music so that you can like showcase like the music you're into as like some sort of like cultural sort of cachet um also his partner is alexis uh ohanian uh, i don't know if i'm saying that right but basically the guy who used to run reddit and is married to serena williams and you know great if they want to get involved in like trying to like make a cool product and like help musicians that's great but once again like 
let's be real what's going on here is that this is just sort of like as you've has haven't mentioned yet but you've definitely texted and talked about with me sort of like another like gentrification of listening in a sense or like gentrification of music in a sense how am i supposed to you know during the middle of a pandemic where there's like 20, like how many people are unemployed like spend 400 dollars on a speaker's system and then spend like another like 80 dollars or maybe 160 dollars for these two seasons just so i can like have like appointment listening it like of you know cobb Baird, like you know jamming in her like apartment like it's it's kind of you know it's cool for a very you know niche audience sure they can afford it but like yeah this isn't like inclusive and this is like sort of yeah contributing to sort of like oh there's an opening there's no live music we can make some money on this and get some seed funding who cares if it like falls apart in like a year or a month like we made our money and then we're out yeah but i guess i'm i think it's even more interesting right like tech bro stuff aside potential downfall stuff aside i think it's more interesting to take them at their word actually and like see how this plays out in the broader context of the shifting structure of the music industry because i think i think yeah 100 so so we're gonna do we're gonna do an imminent critique folks we're gonna do this we're gonna do this warming up <laughs> no but like the problem is that even if this works it only works for a really select group of artists. And I think that it's an example of a, a broader set of problems or a, bro a broader set of issues in the music industry right now that a lot of the solutions that get a lot of press, that get a lot of support, again, it seems like they're only working for a relatively small group of artists who already have followings and even then only works part of the way. Right, so I think another example of this is 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 Bandcamp, which Bandcamp is way better at paying out musicians than other forms, right? And like kudos to them, and they're all about the grow slow strategy. They're not trying to scale up infinity percent, which is also good because a lot of that's unsustainable. But and cross my fingers that Rupert Murdoch doesn't buy them out in a year. Yeah, but even. If they don't, even if it keeps working, it just seems like this still is a solution that only fits a small group of artists. And in some ways, that's why I've been thinking about it as in some ways akin to certain aspects of gentrification, right? Like you've got a city and you've got some nice expensive bars or expensive coffee shops and the people who work in them get paid better money and this is like a high paid service job some of them but like that doesn't scale because you need people with enough money to buy to live there and to buy the 15 dollar cocktail so you can tip four dollars in the 15 dollar cocktail so that let alone the yeah and no, i know I'm, they I, don't let, let <laughs> alone the, don't. <laughs> you know let alone the lawyer who after 10 years of you know working in like you know private equity like like transactions or something like decides that they no longer want to do that and wants to open up a taco shop in like a caribbean neighborhood <laughs> like you need to have the capital to do that right. you know the local people can't do that no so so all of this is just to say that like even those solutions like if they are working it seems the problem is that they're working on such a small scale that the rest of the city is left out and i feel like in some ways it's a similar thing in the music industry which is that even if bandcamp works for certain artists and definitely indie musicians are getting paid more from bandcamp and it can really help it's still the problem is it feels like without shifting broader structure or elements of the music industry, 
it's still it's kind of gen- gentrification it's all, it'll only yeah, work I, for some of the people and there's everyone needs to get something yeah and that's not even that's not a criticism to be clear a band camp like band camps is part of like a greater like a, a part of a system that like has issues and we're more exploring like okay like yes we can have a band camp that's great we love band camp like i've written for them etc but like and but there are still slices of the music community that it's not like working for and like and so we're kind of we were thinking in discussing this episode and everything we've been we've been talking about like how what are other possible like maybe even like pie in the sky like alternatives to making it work for everybody yeah and and i guess that that's my thing just to, to to kind of put a finer point on that which is that is not a criticism of Bandcamp. like i'm not expecting a company to be like they've got there's no ability for them to revolutionize the entire music industry and change the fundamental structure so that artists are paid equitably i just think that, that there's a problem is that it seems like at some level like small scale solutions can help some people but it doesn't address the, the these huge problems and again it's not Bandcamp's job to address those problems like Bandcamp's doing what it can with what it has yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a systematic issue. It's a systematic issue. And I think that, and my gut is that if you're going to deal with the systematic issues, you have to f- go with the forces of change and technology and not like against them. So it seems like figuring out like a smaller scale version of music based on like a certain relationship between artists and like buying individual things of music in some ways feels to me like that's not the way music as a commodity is shifting so you can get some people to opt in to purchasing music and that's great and i think that kind of volitional relationship will help some artists but i think at an industry as a whole it needs to be like okay music is worth more now in the world is the more music is consumed in more places and music sells more things and music is everywhere and it's intimately connected to the kind of the value propositions of modern digital life and that's how music as a commodity is functioning and how do you begin to tap into some of the value of that as opposed to saying like the solution is going to be people choosing to spend money because i just don't think that's how music that's not how music works as a commodity and and one of the things i've been thinking about um as an example in some ways of like why that doesn't work an example of a place where it does is um porn only fans yeah it's porn <laughs> which leads us to porn people <laughs> let's talk about porn <laughs> right so let's talk about porn um no so so we've, we've joked about the show before but i do think it's true uh, it's something i'm still thinking through so again this is an area where like we're a little out of our depths and if anyone um, there are people who have thought about this much more deeply and much more seriously than us like hit us up and tell us how we're wrong and why we're wrong we always want to learn like that's the point yeah and like we're just this is like surface level not surface level thinking but this is just like following the thread and like this is like kind of like an area in which we kind of like ended up and i think there's like value even if we're like not fully understanding the full complexities of it so like okay we've teased people enough about how we're going to talk about porn but like let's 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 uh let's roll with it like so only fans music Okay, so music as a commodity. Right. We've joked before in the show about how music and porn are the killer apps. They're certainly the killer apps of the internet age, right? That like those are the two things that got everyone onto the internet. 
downloading porn and downloading music. The music, yeah. And they've continued to, to and in both of those are both the industries that are absolutely transformed by their relationship to the internet. And in some ways, right. if you go back to our uh, episode with um, David Turner about how the Napster narrative is untrue um, and how the entire loss of value in the music industry and the recreation of value in the music industry can't just be blamed on illegal downloading. I think that doesn't hold as true for pornography. That it seems like the explosion of cameras and the explosion of recording and the explosion of pirated material absolutely devastates and the internet, and the inter- and it transmitted over the internet. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. devastates pornography as an industry so that like people used to make a living doing this. And then by the mid to late two thousands, that's just not true anymore. I read things where like all the porn stars are also working as escorts because that's how you make your money. Yeah. It was in flux. It's, it was in flux. It was changing. And like, basically, yeah, like the, as far as, as far as our like basic understanding was, is that like the vivids of the world were like hurt. And obviously like all the actors, you know, porn actresses and actors were also like hurt by it. Right. Um, and really just de- that industry is decimated in a way that the music yeah. industry takes a hit, but comes back. But now we have only fans. Right. So, more recently which kind of um, looks like a porno band camp no i don't know go ahead <laughs> no a, a little bit it's not that's not totally untrue right it, i think it, they even so, have the same colors like the sort of blue and white anyways okay go ahead <laughs> yeah so only fans for, for people who don't know basically is a website that is sort of a, a a subscription tool right that allows people to have accounts and asks people to pay a certain amount monthly to subscribe to these accounts. So you make pornography, you blow up on Instagram or TikTok with like suggestive but not explicit content because neither of those um, platforms allow explicit content. But you have an OnlyFans link where people can then go and having gotten kind of a sense of what you're about, pay 10, 15, $25 a month to get access to the Uh, like a baseline of content and then there's tiered subscriptions like exclusive con yeah like exclusive content. and then there's a a complicated like tipping system where then to create explicit you know explicit content explicitly for individual fans who tip them so i guess so the question obviously that we're moving towards here is like can this work for your local folk rock artist your local hip hop hip hop act. Well, and that's why I'm so intrigued by OnlyFans because, and again, this is like based on my reading of the journalism about OnlyFans, and if my reading of specific industry issues in music journalism has taught me one thing, it's that a lot of that journalism is probably incorrect. But I don't have the tools to necessarily don't have the tools necessarily to figure out how and why off the bat. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Also, we do this for free. <laughs> we have we haven't started our OnlyFans yet. Oh, uh, sorry, our Patreon. Maybe we can have both. Anyways, have okay, both. moving on. It's <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. money for nothing. OnlyFans. <laughs> money for money for nothing. <laughs> money for yeah, exactly, um, exactly. No, but so uh, the interesting thing about OnlyFans, and that's a fundamentally different dynamic than Bandcamp is that according to this journalism about it, is there there's big, big money that people are getting through OnlyFans, right? 
Um, and it's important to know that OnlyFans takes 20% cut. That's a hefty cut. Yeah, that's an agent fee type yeah. shit. So they take a big cut. But there's people making big money on OnlyFans. You know, there's OnlyFans stars. But that's not what interests me as much because, I mean, it's that's important that it's possible to commoditize pornography in that way in a way that like as we just discussed like hadn't been true in the mid-2000s and maybe is true again but as an individual without your name attached to like a like video product a pornographic video production company or like an agent or anything but the, you can do it on your own you can do it on your own but the much more interesting thing i think is that it seems like there is a fairly low level tier of creators who are able to make some money doing this right so people who have 25 fans and are making an extra 400 you know 25 subscribers and are making an extra 400 or 600 bucks a month via subscription fees and tips and stuff and like you know 600 bucks a month helps you pay your rent that's enough money to make a difference in a lot of people's lives and it's just interesting that that kind of low level support to me is like the kind of is really intriguing and really important because if that could exist for the music industry, if you could make have, if your band could have 15 fans and they would get, that would get you 600 bucks a month, that would make music doable, a lot more doable for a lot yeah, more less people. less work in the part-time job, like, or, you know, the full-time job and like marketing or something like shit like that. You know, you can actually like probably focus a lot more on, on, you know, actually your actual craft. But and it, but in discussing this, you you were you were kind of like thinking that you were you were questioning whether or not like it would work. And it, yeah, so the thing is, it and and I think it, it, I don't think it will work. I don't think it's it, it. Thinking about it further really made me kind of break down in that comparison. Um, and then I think that the way it breaks down tells us something interesting about how music works as a commodity. So it seems to me that more or less and there are community aspects to pornography consumption but in a lot of ways there's kind of an individualistic sexual relationship between the 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 performer and performer entrepreneur and their subscribers right um that at some level it's something that you consume by yourself uh whereas music um i think even music that's like headphones on taking my lonely walk listening to frank ocean like vibes music is that you're still taking a selfie doing that and then like posting a tiktok like so that it like coincides with the lyrics that you're singing to yourself of that frank well, ocean song. or just yeah exactly but but just that music is i think fundamentally social that it's a right. it's a social thing and so that's a part of like how it, music is sold as well as a commodity and it's how it works at a base level and so it means that there's a complicated dance to make music a saleable commodity in this way that pornography maybe doesn't have. Because no band with 15 fans, if your band has only 15 fans, you're not that good. <laughs> but if you're a porn star and only 15 people are watching you, or you know, a pornographic performer and only 15 people are watching you, it's just like those 15 people have access to something that no one else has. And so I think that the way it functions is really different. And and that's kind of true if you think about the underlying structure of the classic music industry when it was commoditizing music more generally, right? That the struggle is you need to pay to play to get songs on the radio. You place songs in commercials. You do all this stuff. You spend money to get a song out there in the world so that 
people have heard it enough that they want to hear it again so that it enters their social world. And then you find a way to restrict access to that song so that they're willing to pay for it. So in some ways, like you're imposing imposing a um, like a bottleneck and you can extract payment at that bottleneck. And but that, only after you get to a point of popularity, like a, like a large popularity. Yeah, only when there's enough demand to make that bottleneck effective. But uh, even then, that might not work as well. You know, I, I mean, these aren't exact um, examples, but I think of like Tidal or I think of even like, you know, Prince trying what didn't he engage in some sort of subscription service like through like a website like a specific website that he created like in the 90s if i recall our, our earlier episode you know so even then it doesn't necessarily work but it's a, a way in which it could maybe work a little bit better no and more direct well no i i guess i'm not even saying like for an artist that this is how they would do it but like that's how a record that's how a record company works that's how right. columbia does it for bob dylan in 1965 you get everyone to want like a Rolling Stone, and then to hear like a Rolling Stone, they need to pay. You have to buy the record. You have to buy right. the record. Right. So the question is, in a digital economy where that ability to create a bottleneck is gone, um, like there isn't a, a, a natural bottleneck, right? What you have is these services that seem to me to be creating what you could call an artificial bottleneck, right? Like a subscription that you have to pay to see these performances that are non-archived or hear these performances that are non-archived but you could archive them and distribute them for literally no more money that is an intentional that's an intentional choice that you're doing um <laughs> yeah. similarly uh with bandcamp as much as great as it is right for the most part given how digital music functions it's an intentional bottleneck it doesn't cost you any more to make this song downloadable for free but you just want people to pay you for it which is your right as an artist but it feels like it plays against the 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 technological and social structure of musical commodities as they're functioning right now yeah 100 percent. because you know to Bandcamp's credit if you play a record if you put a like a, a record on like your wish list and you play it more than like two or three times all of a sudden like this thing pops up and it's all like please open up your wallet and it won't let you play it until like you either buy it or at least have the like whatever email instructions <laughs> to buy the record sent to you. But even then there's a bypass because you can just go to Spotify and a lot of these artists are on Spotify and then listen to it on Spotify and stream it. Or you can go to YouTube because somebody's uploaded the record, you know? And so the technological, I guess, environment, um, yeah. I guess the te te yeah the technological landscape in which we exist in just allows for like the bypassing of that bottleneck and so even when you have like a bandcamp really trying to do that and at least giving the artist the option to like have that bottleneck like it, it it's easily bypassable and I just think that the problem is it's like I would love to live in a world where people out of the good the goodness of their hearts are going to spend money to support music scenes in a real way. But I just think that in the aggregate, and I feel like this stuff has to function in the aggregate if it's not just going to work for a very small number of people who have the financial wherewithal to support their artists, where the choice is like, I've got 15 bucks I can spend on this record versus like, I don't, right? So I think in the aggregate, people are going to not pay for things if they can't, especially in a world where like, everyone's paychecks are lower, especially in a world where there's like massive unemployment and at will employment and 
all the things that we know about the world right now. And so I feel like... Uh, yeah, it's like trying to get blood from a stone, to quote the Bible. <laughs> uh, because essentially, I mean, what you have is a lot of these artists are like people like us who are like out of a job because of the pandemic or who were working industry jobs, you know? And like, say, an artist individual creative expression is like having a band or like being a singer songwriter or whatever you know and we're doing a podcast but we're doing this for free you know so it's like we're trying to get extract money out of each other when it really like the only people that actually have the money to like to actually spend on this are people that are like you know a little bit more financially flexible to do that and then we have to rely on like you said like the goodness of their hearts to actually go and do that and then of course there's also just the other irony of the fact that like talking about the technological landscape in which we exist in where it's also allowing for more artists than ever or slash content to be available and so you have like more people competing for basically the money that exists in a small number of dedicated music fans who are actually willing to open up their wallet and pay for these records that's i think really where for, for me where like this analysis has kind of led me right which is that i think that in the aggregate artificial bottlenecks or intention you know artificial bottlenecks or bottlenecks that require intentional money spent aren't gonna suffice to fix the massive lack of money in the music ecosystem arguably live music has been able to supplant some of that because it's still a natural bottleneck right you have to go to have the experience of a show you need to go see the show if there's a way to sneak into a show people will sneak into the show if there's a way to you know do like a full woodstock and just have everyone show up without tickets they're gonna do that yeah, there's, there's, there's still a reason why there's people outside of venues. I mean, not anymore, obviously, because of COVID. But before COVID, there's still a reason why there's people outside of venues, like, scalping tickets to people at, like, the last minute in, in front. You know, because there's, there's an actual, like, market that wants that. There's people that still want that. But once again, it goes, it's a social thing. We're going together. You and, like, 500 other people get to see, like, this exclusive performance that you can't just go, imagine. You can't just go buy and, like, yeah, imagine. You can't just go buy or, like, stream on, like, Spotify or, like, Bandcamp. You know, so that we don't have an answer for like what that means, but it is an interesting aspect in which we were discussing like, you know, the idea of music as a commodity. But but your finger is up. It sounds like maybe you do have an idea. <laughs> no, but I think the thing, though, is that right. I, I think that there's been a. Someone's like an analytical failure on the part of the music industry that because the, the bottleneck that are kind of in their purview don't function anymore. They're like, music has lost value as a commodity. Yeah. And I don't think that's true at all. In fact, like we talked about with David, like we talked about it with, with a couple of different times here and there, it's music is really still important to the broader digital economy, right? Music is the most popular thing on YouTube. Spotify is worth 1.5 times Universal Music Group and with a couple of small exceptions, pretty much is just a middleman, right? Similar with TikTok, which doesn't exist without the music industry and has enormous valuation, right? The value of music has not declined. The value of music as a commodity has not declined. The value of music is directly reflected in the values of all three of those companies and probably a lot more that we could think of. That means music is still valuable. The problem is just that it is not valuable in a way that the record industry, that the people who are making the music are 
easily able to extract the value from it. But that music is still valuable. That music is probably more valuable than it was before. There's all this kind of um, delighted coverage of the record industry now, that the record industry is on track to, you know, in a couple years, be as valuable and as profitable as it was before the crash in um, the two, early 2000s. And like, that's a failure, guys. That's a huge failure. There's so much more music in so many more people's lives connected to so many more things than there was in 2002. And if all you're saying is that you're able to extract as much money from it as you did before I could get any song in the world anytime I want on my phone anywhere, that is much more valuable than it was before, but just someone else is getting that money. And so I do feel like the way to fix some of this might be, and, and the question of like how you begin to even have that fight is maybe a question for another day. But I do think that it's thinking with these commodity forms and not against them. It's not how do we artificially close off or ask people to pay extra for music to give it value here and now because only a select group of people only like no one like $300 for a set of speakers and then another 70 for a season means that it's too expensive for most people but the way to get music valuable is how to how do you tap into that much broader stream of value that's out there that we see reflected in the stock market right alphabet's worth a lot of money a big chunk of that is youtube and that's entirely based on not entirely, driven but by music. It, a lot yeah. of that is driven by music. Yeah, and also just like, you know, in analyzing this, if you're on like, a, you know, if you're not like just some tech entrepreneur trying to make some money, like analyzing this from a journalist standpoint, like starting to think about the actual artists themselves and like, they're the ones, that, they're the factory workers. They're the ones that are creating this and, have, and are, are, they're the foundation of this entire, entire industry and the reason why it's so valuable. And yet, for, and yet in, in a sick i don't know capitalist like sad sort of ironic way they're the ones that are making the least amount of money there's my there's my marxist take for you no no you're <laughs> right i mean no one no one is more alienated from the value created by their labor than a musician who's indirectly giving value to youtube and i know that youtube pays out on copyrights some of the time but compared to the the value added to youtube that like any piece of music in the world is on there that you could DJ a party just from YouTube. And that's why YouTube, that's why like I don't use Vimeo. <laughs> yeah. That's huge. And there's no way because there's so many intermediaries, so many chains in that link. There's no way for an artist to get a slice of that money as things are, are set up right now. Partially. And as we talked about last time, set up that way intentionally by a legal system that is benefiting a set group of companies, a set group of executives, a set group of power players um, that has no interest in changing this landscape because they all kind of own each other. Yeah. Um, and that might, and, then that, that, and is it, to bring a full circle, that might also sort of include your favorite local venue. And it's complex. It's complicated. <laughs> but that's the truth of it. So, so, uh, so if 90% of the venues and uh, fall apart, then maybe like one way to jumpstart like getting this is like maybe my idea is like having more like uh, uh, local artists have like some say and some ownership in the venues. And like if we could somehow expand that out greater into this like technological landscape, uh, you know, then uh, we, we definitely support it. But it's something to at least like think about when analyzing this, when thinking about it, if you're starting a business, if you're writing about it, so on. 
Yeah, performer co-ops. There you go. I'm all for them. Uh, you were listening to Money for Nothing uh, podcast about music and capitalism, music by bird language. I'm Saxon Baird. I'm with Sam Backer as always. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. But but also, actually, Bird Language, new single, Hannaford. Check it out. Great video. Check it. <laughs>